We all bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Lord, we praise you for this place where we can gather and worship you. Lord, I pray that you would be with each and every one of us and that you would speak to us, Lord. Uh, That my words would be inspired by the words of this text, Lord, that are your words and that you would take it, Lord, and uh, anything that I say that is not of you, Lord, I pray that you would just dismiss and that which is of you, Lord, you would take and drive into our hearts. God, I pray that this would be a time in which uh, we would not just um, uh, leave here with some new information, Lord, but that we would leave here uh, different people. God, we, we come to you as people from very, very different places, Lord. Some of us having walked with you for many years, uh, Lord, some of us feeling very close to you, uh, Lord, others of us maybe having walked with you for many years now feel very distant from you, others of us. Uh, maybe have never really pursued who you are, or have never had any sort of encounter with you, and, and all of this is new, Lord. I just pray that you would meet each and every one of us exactly where we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's good to be back. I had a wonderful time uh, with my family, uh, but, you know, after a while, even your, you know, your family can kind of get old. So it's, uh, it's, really, it's really good to be back and to be with uh, each and every one of you. Uh, I want to extend a special welcome, as we try to do each week, to those of you who are new. Uh, if you're visiting or um, maybe you've just been coming for a short time, I think that actually there, there are some weeks where if I see a new person, I'm like, oh boy, I'm not sure this was the right week for them to come. Uh, but this isn't one of them. I feel like this, this text is one that, uh, that really, really gets at the heart and the essence of what Christianity is, is all about. Um, hey, Patrick, is Patrick back there? He's abandoned his post. Can you turn me down a little bit? I'm feeling a little bit overwhelming here. I want them to hear from God. I don't want them to be drowned out by the microphone. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, but no, this, we are finishing up uh, our series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the last sermon in the series on the Mount. We've come to the end of it, so, so we're done. We're at the end of it. And what we find in this, uh, in this final passage on the Sermon on the Mount is that Again, Jesus has been delivering the sermon. It's all one sermon. And, of course, he does what I think most good sermons do, is at the end, he really distills it. He really sums it all up. So if you missed the entire series, hey, it doesn't matter. You're here today. This is really what it, what it all comes down to. And I think that this passage really gets to the essence of Christianity. What is Christianity all about? Right At the end of the day, at the end of the day, when you, you, you pull apart all the fog, all of the mystery, all of the confusion that can often come in our understanding of Christianity, oftentimes the fog and the confusion that you can find in various parts of the Bible, I know there are sometimes you'll read certain sections of the Bible and you leave more confused than you went into it, right? You, you leave with less hope than you did uh, when you went into it because you're so confused and and. and And so we need something that can help to distill it and just get right to the heart of the matter. What is the essence of Christianity? At the end of the day, what does it mean to be a Christian? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, on that day, on that final day, when we stand before God, what is it that really matters? 
Right? This is what this passage is getting at. On that day, Jesus says, oh, where is that? I think in verse 22, many will say to me, on that day, at the end of the day, on that day. That's, that's uh, talking about judgment day. Now, I know that judgment day, judgment is not a, a, a popular concept in our culture, but the reality is that everybody believes in judgment day. To a certain extent, everybody does. Everybody believes in judgment day to a certain extent, even if you are a complete relativist, and, and, and even if you believe that all paths ultimately lead to God, uh, you still actually believe in Judgment Day. Judgment Day for you is that day in eternity when we all realize that there wasn't a Judgment Day. Right? It, it'll be that day when, when you say to your friend, see, I told you there wasn't a Judgment Day. Well, that is Judgment Day. Because what is Judgment Day? It's the day in which the truth of reality is revealed. Whatever that is, whatever that is, that's the day in which it's revealed. It's the day in which that which is true reality comes to the front. Everything that was not really on the side of truth is shown to be not on the side of truth. Whatever your understanding of truth is, everybody has this idea of judgment day. It's that day when truth, whatever it is, is revealed and you're seen to either be on the side of truth or not on the side of truth, whatever that happens to be. So even if you're a relativist, to a certain extent you believe in Judgment Day, that's just to sort of diffuse it for you, because for some of us, just the whole concept gets us all riled up, and I'm just trying to show us that we all believe in this to a certain extent. And so what this is talking about is that from the Christian perspective, right? if Christianity is right, then, then what, well, at the end of the day, on that day, what really matters? On the end of the day, when we stand before God, and he looks in to to see who are a part of his people and and who are not, what is it going to be that is going to decide that? And the first thing that I think we observe in this passage is that it is not simply a matter of right belief. It's not simply a matter of having the right beliefs. And I think that's actually somewhat shocking particularly to good, solid, Bible-believing, conservative Christians, because that's what we tend to say. We tend to say, well, it's entirely about what you believe. It's all about belief. But Jesus challenges that. He says it's not simply a matter of belief. We find that here in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying not everyone who claims to have a profession of faith in me as Lord. He's saying, you may have that belief, but but simply having correct belief isn't right. What's kind of ironic about this is that it's not as though Jesus is saying that belief doesn't matter. He's not saying that. He's not saying that belief doesn't matter. It's assumed here, actually, as he talks about this, that you'll have the right belief. So in this sense, he's talking specifically to people who claim to have the right belief. See, that's just sort of a given. That's just sort of, that's sort of assumed. And, And What's sort of ironic is that in the very place where he says it's not simply about belief, is also a place where he very clearly articulates what correct belief is. Do you see what I mean here? Look, look, look what's going on in this passage. It's most clear in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Now, again, what's he talking about? He's talking about judgment day. And he's saying that oh, when you stand before God on judgment day, right, 
uh, except for he doesn't say those who stand before God. He says those who stand before me. Whoa. You see very subtly what he's claiming here? He's claiming to stand for God. And this is about as powerful of a high Christology as you can get. Right here, Jesus is saying, yeah, you're used to, okay, God is the one that you stand before, and that's me. And this is why at the end of this passage, it says in verse 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I'd say that's a little bit of an understatement. He's just proclaimed to be God himself. What more authority do you need? But the irony, of course, is that at the very point where he he articulates what correct belief is, believing that he is Lord, that's the, the central belief of Christianity, at the very moment in which he articulates that, his point is actually that simply believing in that isn't enough. Many will come to me, many will come and, 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 and profess faith. He's, he's saying it's not simply a matter of correct belief. You, you might have, have it all figured out. You might, you might adhere to all the right, right beliefs in the Bible. This is what he's saying, and, and that's it's not enough. It's not even about passionate belief. Even if you're passionate about it, you might, you might say, well, okay, it's not enough to believe, but if you're passionate about your beliefs, like you're really fired up, like you love reading the Bible, and you love, you love looking into all of these things, and you love figuring out theology, and, and you've read uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas' uh, Summa Theologica, and, and you've read Calvin's Institutes, and, and, and you've, you've read Barth's Dogmatics in the Latin and in the German, and, and, and you just know it all, and that's good. that's good. That's good if you do that sort of thing. You're passionate about it, but he's saying even if you're passionate about your right belief, that still isn't enough. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what's really at the, at the heart of Christianity? What is the essence of what it means to be one of God's people? What is the essence of what it means to be on the path that leads to life? And Jesus is saying, it isn't simply a matter of belief. It isn't simply a matter of belief, and secondly, it isn't simply a matter of behavior. It isn't simply a matter of right belief, and it isn't simply a matter of right behavior. We see that again in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Uh, What they're saying is, uh, did we not do what you said to do? Were we not obedient to what you told us to do? Because actually, why do they highlight, why does Jesus anticipates that his followers might at the end of the day say this to him? You, you know, this is what we did. We prophesied in your name. We drove out demons. We performed miracles. Now, why is he anticipating that they might fall on that? Well, because if you jump forward just a few pages in chapter 10, we, we discover that this is exactly what Jesus commands them to do. In chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the twelve, sends them out, and he says, as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. 
And so Jesus is anticipating that some of his followers might, at the end of the day, they might come back and say, wait a minute, Jesus, I did all these things. I did what you told me to do. I was obedient to what you called me to. I was obedient to the work of the ministry. Isn't that really what this is? How many of us, at the end of the day, would say, wait a minute, Jesus, I was faithful. I was obedient to you. I served in the children's ministry. I served on the elder board. I served as a trustee. I was a pastor. I preached and proclaimed the word of God. I did what you said to do. I was obedient to you. And Jesus is saying, well, you may come to me and say all these things, and I may still say, uh, I never knew you. Saying it's not, it's not simply a matter of right belief. It's not simply a matter of right behavior. Of course, he's not saying that behavior doesn't matter. Again, that's a given. That's a given. Jesus is assuming that as a follower of Jesus, you're going to seek to be obedient to him. That's just like, duh. I mean, hello, obviously, if you're seeking to be a follower of Jesus, of course you're going to seek to be obedient. That's, that's, that's a given. It's not like obedience doesn't matter, right? I mean, in, in James chapter 2, Paul, uh, James says the same thing, right? He says, he says, faith without deeds is dead. So obedience is important. Paul, Paul says the same thing. In, in Romans, Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing uh, is ad- addressing a context in which in, in first century Judaism there appeared to be a sort of mindset that's, that, that actually, and I think this is something that's often misunderstood, that there were, there were some Jews within first century that, that basically thought they didn't have to do anything. That just by virtue of being Jewish, that meant they were saved. Because they're Jewish, they're the people of God, so it really didn't matter what they did. All they really needed to do was just make sure that they were still ethnically Jewish. So they needed to do the religious rituals and the cultural practices that marked them out as Jewish. And then if they did that, well, then they were Jewish. So it didn't really matter what they did as long as they, you know, maintained their Jewishness. And Paul says, no, your behavior matters. And this is what he says. And he says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then in verse 13 he says, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. He's saying behavior matters. I mean, that's, that's a given. That's just a given. I mean, as a follower of Jesus, of course, of course you're, you're going to be obedient. I mean, not perfectly. Paul doesn't say you're going to do it perfectly. Paul, Jesus, James, nobody ever they don't say that. You're going to do it perfectly. But, but it's just sort of a given. Then, of course, you're, you're, you're going to seek to be obedient to God. But Jesus is saying it's not simply a matter of being obedient. That's a given, but that's not enough. It's not simply a matter of belief. It's not simply a matter of obedience. Those are givens, but that's not enough. So what is it? What is it? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, what, 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 what is the, 
the essence of, of, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I think we find a clue in the final uh, illustration that Jesus gives. Beginning in verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, again, this is Jesus' using this illustration to talk about when the truth of the matter is revealed. At the end of the day, what will stand? And I think one of the things we have to notice is that in this context, we have to realize what he's saying. He's saying that if you have built your house on the rock of right belief, it's not rock. If all you've done is build it on right belief, you've actually built your house on the sand. And if you've built your house on good behavior, on the right behavior, well, then you also have built it on sand. That's the context here. So it's not a matter of right belief. It's, it's, it's not simply a matter of right belief. It's not simply a matter of right behavior. That's a given, but he's saying if that's all you have, you're actually building your house on the sand. So what is it? We find the clue right there in verse 24 when he says this. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. It's interesting that he says, these words of mine. He he doesn't say everyone who hears all of my words or all of my commands. Uh, He doesn't say everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice. uh, right? Because this is precisely what he's anticipating His disciples might do. They'll say, well, wait a minute. I did put your words into practice. You said to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick and to drive out demons. I put those into practice, right? So so what do you mean, Jesus? Well, he's very careful. He says, whoever whoever puts these words, he's being very specific about a specific set of teaching. Of course, what is that? Well, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying whoever puts into practice what I have said in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever builds himself on the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that is the person who is building themselves on the rock. And so what is the essence of the Sermon on the Mount? What is it that we have discovered if we go back and just try to pull it all together? And here's what we discover. We discover that the Sermon on the Mount is not about right belief. It's not simply about right behavior. It's about having the right heart. Jesus is saying that at the end of the day, it's not simply a matter of right belief or right behavior. It's a matter of having the right heart. Let's just look briefly at what we've seen over the last several weeks. Going back to chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. 
And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You see what he's saying? Uh, He's saying, saying, well, yeah, obedience is a given. It's a given. Of course you're not going to murder somebody. That's a given. But what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your heart? Are you finding yourself angry towards something? You see, it's, it's more than just obedience to this command. It's a matter of what's going on in your heart. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? He's saying, of course, obedience to that command. Yeah, yeah, that's a given. That's a duh. Of course, you should be obedient to that. But it's deeper than that. It's not just a matter of your belief or your behavior. It's, it's what's going on in your heart. I mean, maybe you're not actually undressing uh, that man's wife, but are you doing it in your heart? Are you doing it in your mind? He's saying it's It's not just a matter of right behavior. That's a given. It's what's going on in your heart. Verse 43, chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we could look at that and think, okay, he's, he's calling us to a new kind of behavior. But actually, we need to dig a little bit deeper, because really, this isn't a ma- ultimately a matter of behavior. It's a matter of the heart. What he's asking us is, do you really understand what it means to love someone? Like, at a heart level, what does it mean to love someone? Of course, the, the word that we find here, and, and what we find throughout Jesus' teaching, is that the idea of Christian love is that it is completely selfless. That when you love somebody, true Christian love is a kind of love in which you love them irrespective of what they do to you. You love them whether you're going to get anything out of it or not. You love them whether they're going to respond in kind or you love them whether they respond not in kind. And so Jesus' whole point is, is that if you understand at a heart level what love really is, then it shouldn't make a difference whether it's your friend or your enemy. Why would it make any difference if you get it at that at the heart level, I, I, I mentioned this when we looked at this in detail several months ago, but I, I, I think it's, it's an interesting and important point, and that is that this passage where Jesus calls us to love our enemies, there is, I don't think, any passage in the Bible uh, that brings a greater challenge to the theory of evolution as an all-encompassing theory than this passage right here. Because irrespective of what you think, about the compatibility of the Bible and evolution at the biological level. And I happen to think there's significantly less uh, conflict than many think. Uh, The real issue is not so much the conflict, biologically speaking, it's sociological. It's the challenge that the Bible brings to the theory of evolution at the sociological level. And let me explain what I mean by that. See, evolution can explain why it is that you would love your friends and your relatives. Evolution can explain why you would love your wife. That's just smart. That's survival of the fittest. Right? I, I mean, it, it's, it's wise, guys, to, to love your wife and be good to her because if you don't, you're going to end up sleeping on the couch. And if you end up sleeping on the couch and she's up in the room, then you're not going to be able to pass on your genes. Which is the whole idea of survival of the fittest. So, so it's actually incredibly wise to love your spouse, to, 
to, to, to love your wife. You know, the phrase happy wife, happy life, have you heard this? Happy wife, happy life. It's a great phrase, but that's not Christian at all. That's survival of the fittest. Because the fittest man is the, is the man who loves his wife so that they can be, to, be together. That, that's not Christian love. That's, that's survival of the fittest. But the real challenge, see what Jesus is saying, is that evolution can explain why you would love your wife and your, your children. That, that, that's good for you, but what it cannot explain is why you would love somebody who not only cannot help you, but actually might threaten your survival. It can't explain that. It goes against survival of the fittest. So Jesus is is calling us to a much deeper understanding of what it means to really love. He says if you really get what love is at a heart level, which is loving someone irrespective of what they do to you, well, then you're going to love your friends and you're going to love your enemies. You see, once again, Jesus is saying at at the very essence of Christianity, it isn't about right belief or simply about right behavior. It's about having the right heart. Again, chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Now notice here, he's just assuming that you will do acts of righteousness. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. That's just a given. You see, obedience is just a given. It's a given. Of course you're going to do that. But it's deeper than that. The, the, the real question is, okay, all right, so you're, you're doing your act of, acts of obedience, but why are you doing it? Why are you giving to the needy? Uh, why are you serving in the church? Well, what is the reason? Are you doing these things really because you just want to please God, or are you doing these things because somehow it makes you, uh, you, you, it makes you be able to uh, feel good about yourself and look down on those who don't do it? Right, I mean, is, is the reason why you give to the poor and the needy is so that then you can tell all your friends about how much you give to the poor and the needy? Uh, is the reason why, uh, is the reason why you, you lead a Bible study? What is the reason you lead a Bible study? Is it really at a heart level because, because you really want to glorify God? Or is there a part of you that really wants to lead your Bible study so that other people will think you're really spiritual? And so you, you're really excited when your Bible study goes really well and, and that gets you really excited because then everybody thinks you're really spiritual. I mean, what, what motivates you? I mean, when you preach a sermon, at the heart level, why? Is it so that people will think that you're a, a great pastor and a good speaker? Is it really at a heart level because you really want to glorify God? See, Jesus is saying it's not simply a matter of belief. It's not simply a matter of behavior. It's a matter of the heart. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He's saying, well, of course, it matters what you do with your money. Behavior matters. That's a given. But again, the real issue is your heart. Verse Verse 21, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The ultimate question is, it's not how much money you have. It's not even how much money you give away. It's, it's what's going on in your heart. What are you looking to for your safety and your security? You know, you can be an idolater of money and not have any. Money can be your idol and you don't have any. You all think, well, idolatry of money, that's just for rich people. 
No, it's actually for poor people too. And part of the reason why it's clear that they're idolaters is because they just keep spending it all the time and then they don't have any. It's a matter of the heart. It isn't a matter of how much money you have. It's not a matter of what's going on at the heart level. You see, Jesus is saying that at the end of the day, it isn't simply a matter of having right belief. It's not simply a matter of having right behavior. It's a matter of having the right heart. Another way of saying this, and this is what Jesus says in this passage, is that it's not simply a matter of whether or not you bear fruit or not. It's not a matter of whether or not you bear fruit or not. It's whether or not it's good fruit or bad fruit. You notice this in verse, verse 17. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Notice the distinction isn't between a person who bears fruit and a person who doesn't bear fruit. He's not saying that. He's, it, it's a given. It's assumed, right, that you're going you're gonna to bear fruit. I mean, you're a follower of Jesus. You're, you're going to be obedient. You're, right belief, right behavior, that's fruit. That's the fruit that it's talking about. So that's a given. That's not even the point. The question is, it's not a matter of fruit versus no fruit. It's a question of good fruit versus bad fruit. What is the quality of that? Paul makes a similar point, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. See, this is what he's saying, right? It's a given that as a follower of Jesus, uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to do some of these things, right? You're going to give to the poor. You're, uh, you're going to exercise uh, uh, insight into, into the mysteries of truth. You, you're going to do all of those things. I mean, that, that, that's a given. The question is, what's underneath all of that? Why, again, are you giving to the poor? Why, again, are you prophesying the name of Jesus? And how are you doing it? Are you doing it with a love that is patient and kind, that is not envious, that does not boast, that is not proud, that is not rude? You see, it's, the, it's not just whether or not you're bearing fruit. It's the quality of that fruit. Jesus is saying that at the end of the day, it isn't simply a matter of right belief. It isn't simply a matter of right behavior. It's a matter of the heart. And so I, I think this is what, what troubles us. Because that's, that's, that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable if it's a matter of the heart. Because here's why that's uncomfortable. Because if it's, if it's a matter of right belief and a matter of right behavior, that's something you can control. You see, you can change your beliefs. You can change your behavior. But you can't change your heart. You can change your beliefs. I mean, people believe all kinds of things. You can kind of convince yourself of just about anything you want. Right? You can change your beliefs. You can change your behavior. You have control over your behavior, particularly if you're a religious person. Because religious people, you know, we tend to be somewhat self-disciplined. That's why we show up to church even when we don't want to be here, right? Because we're disciplined. 
Right? So we have a certain measure of control over our behavior, and, and that's comfortable. So I have control over my beliefs. I have control over my behavior, but your heart. <laughs> you don't have control over your heart. That's why it's frightening. And I, I think this sheds light then on what, what does it mean to enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, again, the imagery here is of a a narrow gate, a narrow path through which you pass to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is that when you have a narrow gate, you, you... you can't just expect that you're going to drift through it. Right? You have to be intentional. Uh, one of the things that I love to do when I go out to Colorado, and we didn't really get a chance to do this this last time because we have two very small children and it would not have been responsible for us to do this, but I love to go whitewater rafting. And when you're, when you're going down and you're, you're heading towards some big rapid, usually... The situation is something like this. There is a very small window in which you need to try to get that boat to go through. And if you go a little bit to the left, you're going to get crashed against a rock and die. And if you get swept off to the right, you're going to fall into a big hole and drown and die. Uh, So you have to be very intentional, very intentional about going. You have to maneuver and make sure that, that everything is like, you can't just drift. You're not going to just drift through it. And this is what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying, listen, to enter into the kingdom of heaven is going to require some intentionality. But here's the surprising thing. You see, most of us would think, well, yeah, I know what that intentionality is. That intentionality is I need to be intentional about making sure that I have the right belief. (laughs) I need to be intentional about making sure that I have the right behaviors, right? That's what I need to be intentional about. And Jesus is saying, okay, well, that's all good. That's a given. But what he's actually saying is that you need to be intentional about having the right heart. But again, that's very uncomfortable. That's very uncomfortable. I I think that one of the things that we're trying to do with our community groups, if I can just kind of sum it up, I would say that the primary purpose of our community groups is to help us get the right heart. That's what we're after. And honestly, and I get this because even for myself, I think that's a little uncomfortable. You see, I think what most of us would prefer is a Bible study that is geared towards right belief and right behavior. Right? Give, give, give me a good Bible study which teaches me all the doctrine. Let's really dive in and figure out what does this mean and what does this mean? And, and we can kind of argue different and we try to figure out right belief. I just I want to understand the Bible. I just want to know more. I want to be able to understand it so I can articulate it better to people around me. Yeah, I just want to, I want to have good belief. I want to make sure that my beliefs are right. Yeah? That's how some of us are. That's the kind of Bible study we want. And others of us, the kind of Bible study we want is one that focuses on right behavior. I want a Bible study where they're going to teach me and show me what does it mean to, to, to be a solid Christian man and, and how, what does it mean to do the right thing and, and how can I change my behavior. So I want a Bible study and I want to look at passages of Scripture that, that will really show me what it is that I should do. But don't give me a Bible study that's going to look at my heart. Because right, that's uncomfortable. 
that's uncomfortable because you have control over your beliefs. You have control over your behavior. But you don't have control over your heart. Jesus is saying at the end of the day, though, that's what really matters is, is your heart right? And this is why if all we had from Jesus was his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, it would be very cruel. Because basically what he'd be saying is, this is what is required. You need to have a right heart, but you can't change it. That would be cruel. This is where we get to the very heart of the gospel. Jesus didn't just come to tell us that our hearts are wrong, that our hearts are off. Jesus came to change our hearts. At the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus came to change your heart. That if we would be willing to be honest and open and humble ourselves before him, not just confessing that our beliefs are off, not just confessing that our behavior is off, but actually confessing that our hearts are wrong, that even in our good deeds, even our good deeds are tainted by the fact that they aren't motivated by the right heart, if we would be willing to have that kind of humility before God, if we would be willing to confess that, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus came not only to forgive us of our sin, but to free us of our sin throughout the Old Testament when it talks about the coming of the new covenant it uses the language of a new heart that God will give you a new heart he will remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh what it requires of us is that we simply come before God in humility and say I can't change my heart I can't change the way I'm feeling towards this person I can't change the fact that, that whenever I do good deeds it's, I'm really hoping somebody else will see it I can't change that God, I need you to change my heart. I need you to forgive me, and I need you to love me, and I need to be filled with your spirit. I need to be united with you that I can truly become what it means to be a Christian. I'm going to leave you with one last passage. In Revelation chapter 2. On page 1,216 of your pew Bibles, you can turn there if you want to. St. John has a vision in which he sees Jesus evaluating these different churches in Asia Minor. Jesus is evaluating them. You might say it's sort of a pre-judgment judgment day. Just kind of sit a little heads up, guys. This is where you are. Let me tell you what I see. And this is what he says about the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Notice what he's saying. He's commending them. He's saying, you know what? You've got the right beliefs. 
you've got right doctrine. You, you, you get it. You're passionate about right belief. And so when you see somebody coming into your fold who isn't teaching the truth, that bothers you. Like, you've got that. You, you, you've got right belief. Not only do you have right belief, you've also got right behavior. Look, it, it says, uh, you have persevered and have endured hardship. I know your deeds. He's saying, you're, you're people whose behavior is solid. Even in the face of persecution, you have been willing to, to be obedient to me in the face of that. So you've got right belief and you've got right behavior. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Here's my question for each and every one of us. Are we building our house on the sand of right belief and right behavior. Because Jesus is saying at the end of the day that that's not what it's about. Jesus is saying if if that's all you're building it on at the end of the day, you're going to be found on the wrong side of truth. But, If you will turn and humble yourself before God and say, God, I confess that my heart is not right, he will come and he will forgive you and he will make you right. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you and we repent of our right belief and right behavior as the rock on which we stand. God, we know that you alone can change our hearts. You alone can make us right. You alone are the gate which leads to eternal life. And so, God, I I just pray for a searing of our hearts. I pray for a movement of your spirit within us, Lord, in which we we would break through layers of stone in our hearts that maybe go very, 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 very deep. That we would repent of our religion. We would repent of our good works. We would repent of anything that is not ultimately stemming from a heart that is truly yours. God, may we find our worth and our identity and our joy in you and nothing but you. And Lord, from that, may we begin to produce not just fruit, but good fruit. So God, sear our hearts, Lord Jesus. Make us humble. Allow us to confess one another, not just our wrong deeds, but even our wrong motivations for our deeds. And Lord, in that, in those weak and dark moments where we confess, confess that, Lord, that we would really find freedom, that you would break us free. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.